Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Sean, how are you doing tonight? I'm Max. Hi, everyone. Also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Enjoying the weather, except it makes the night quite hot if you are resisting turning on the AC. But, you know, first world problems. Mine's been on like 68 for like weeks now. I don't know why you guys. It's 2019. <laughs> if you didn't want to have AC, you should have been born 200 years ago. But no, we're at a... I'll get right on that. Later on in this episode, we'll talk about some of the top prospects in the system. Sean uh, had an article last week that had his top 20 prospects in the Royal system. Uh, but first, we're going to talk a little bit about the news of the past week. And of course, the big headline from this week was the incident with the Chicago White Sox. The, uh, the Royals and White Sox on Wednesday cleared their benches in disagreement after Brad Keller hit White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson with a pitch in the sixth inning. It all stemmed from Anderson's bat flip a couple innings earlier. Uh, he had a pretty lengthy home run and celebrated in a way that which a bat flip is probably an understatement. It was actually, he actually threw the bat in celebration. Uh, the Royals did not take kindly to that, and uh, Keller would hit him with a first pitch he saw Anderson with in the sixth inning. Uh, Keller would be ejected, uh, as would Royals bench coach Dale Svame and White Sox manager Rick Renteria. Anderson would be ejected as well and suspended one game for a racial slur directed at Brad Keller. Keller will also be suspended for five games, although he is appealing. Uh, Matthew, you've written a little bit in the past about how some of these retaliations in baseball are pretty infantile. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about you know, the article you wrote last year uh, in response to, I think, some of the beanings that were going on in baseball and why you think that uh, maybe the, these kind of incidents should be a, a thing of the past? Yeah, I, I I think it was it was last year or the year before I wrote it, um, and this is one of the things that I feel pretty strongly about. Um, I won't go all uh, hot take radio host and yell about it, um, but I, I I do feel pretty strongly about this, um, and that's basically baseball is is unique kind of in the way that has these these unwritten rules that nevertheless nevertheless get upheld um basically the one in question that we're talking about here is if someone shows up a pitcher after some sort of hit or really for any reason that the pitcher takes offense to the pitcher can just throw at the batter and then hit him and then it's the idea is that it's policed by the players and everybody knows it even if it's not written down um 
and I, there's sort of something to that. I mean, Tim Anderson kind of had to know when he pimped that home run that it was coming, you know, and I don't think anybody was surprised when Keller did it. And there were some, some takes about it uh, that I saw that were like really critical of Keller that I that I sort of disagreed with because Keller was just kind of doing what, what you do. Um, and so the problem that I have is not in this situation is not that Keller did it necessarily is that my problem is that is with the, the thing as a whole. Um, basically when you throw a baseball at someone, you have a, a high possibility of seriously injuring someone. I mean, you're throwing, you know, a ball close to hundred miles an hour at someone, you know, you see how pitchers miss, you know, in the strike zone all the time, right? So if you if you aim for like their their side, right, or their butt, and it just moves a little bit and it hits them in the you know in the knee and then you know, cracks their knee or it hits them in the head or something, that's that's seriously dangerous. And people say, you know, oh well, yeah, hit them in the butt and and whatever that doesn't matter. But but you have a situation here where the pitcher is purposefully trying to inflict pain on the batter and that is just absolutely insane that should never be it should never happen ever it's dumb that it happened in the first place or that it became a thing and it shouldn't ever happen in my opinion because there's there's just no um uh similar kind of thing in football right like how weird would it be in football if you know, the the cornerback thought the wide receiver was mouthing off, so he just tackled him, you know, even before he lined up. You know, that, that doesn't happen. And so that's, that's sort of my core argument with it is pitchers can seriously hurt batters even if they're not meaning to. And even if they don't, that's – it's still very dangerous. And batters basically have no defense against it, right? So if a pitcher – actually throws at a batter's head there's nothing that the batter can do about it the thing is if the and manny machado mentioned this a couple of years ago when the whole when he was involved in like a similar incident and he made a really good point which is like you know a pitcher can use a weapon to inflict pain on a batter but if the batter like goes up to a pitcher with his bat he'd be suspended for a very long time you know that's not it's the whole thing is just really messed up and it just smacks of just like testosterone fueled anger wah rah and it it just shouldn't happen um so that's a, that's a really long-winded way of saying that i think the unwritten rules are stupid i don't again i don't necessarily think that brad keller did anything wrong or outside the scope of what most pitchers would do in that situation um but you know the other side of the coin is is bat flipping, which is a whole different issue. Um, and Max, you're 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 pro bat flip, aren't you? Yeah, I am pro bat flip. Um, but I do think there is, there should be a distinction made between uh, bat flips made in celebration um, and then bat flips made to uh, show up an opponent. And I think Tim Anderson's bat flip um, got pretty close to that line if it didn't cross it. Um, you know, I think there is still something to be said about showing opponents respect and, you know, it's gotten a little crazy in, in football, but, um, you know, Bill James had a tweet, uh, and it got some criticism, but, but just basically making the point that we should 
that we all want respect and we should all give respect. And that's, you know, how most people want to play sports. Um, so I feel like we should keep that in mind, at least, uh, while still allowing players to celebrate. And I think like even like Jose Bautista's big bat flip in the playoffs a few years ago uh, was more celebrating than taunting. So it's kind of hard to draw that line. And how do you distinguish it? Um, but even if you if even if you uh, do feel like, you know, bat flips should be out of bounds, like the way to police that is not to throw baseballs at a guy. Uh, and, you know, like you, you say, some people say don't throw that, you know, that Keller wasn't throwing at his head and he was just throwing at his, his, his butt and taking something off of it. So it wasn't really going to hurt him that much. And that's probably true. But in that case, like what's what's even the point of that? Like if you're not going to hurt him. Uh, is that even really even sending a message? I mean, does anyone think Tim Anderson got the message of, hey, don't do that? Because he's got a history of being a very exuberant player uh, on, the, on the field, and that, that got him into trouble last year. He had a dust-up with Salvador Perez where Anderson had a hit and was kind of yakking about it on the, on the field, and Salvador kind of felt disrespected by that. And I wrote an article that was kind of critical of Salvi last year saying, hey, that's being kind of hypocritical because the Royals in their heyday were very demonstrative and celebratory uh, on the field. So, um, you know, I, I think there is a line to be drawn. I think you can try to allow the bat flips that are celebratory, but, but you do want to stay in a place where you're not allowing just – blatant disrespectful taunting so i don't know sean where do you come down on bat flips and is there a way to kind of police it so we don't aren't just too excessive with this stuff yeah i mean um if you really want to get radical and, and first let me just say i fully support bat flips and i support i fully don't throwing at them uh, that's absolutely ridiculous uh it's dangerous there's no need for it and I mean yeah someone can get hurt and you know it was the same thing and I, I kind of and I was pretty pretty vocal about it when it happened on in a, on the internet and obviously that's always a bad choice to give any opinion <laughs> on the internet um, but I did in this case and uh, I got like I got a couple of like oh that's just the way it's been played for 180 years or it's yeah, like the, yeah. that's, you know that's the way it goes but you know what I mean we catchers used to like get bowled over at the mound and um uh, you could slide in a second to break up a double play, stupid stuff like that. And then someone finally got hurt and then they figured it out and they said, okay, this is dumb. Let's stop this. So I think, uh, you know, I, just cause that's the way it's been played or baseball needs to please itself or any other kind of Rex Hudlerism you want to throw out there. It's, it's kind of poorly conceived. And I think the only way I think they need to get better because I mean, Brad Keller got five games, which is one start. Um, games are meaningless for a pitcher. Um, and then what Anderson got one, uh, I mean, I, if you want to get serious, I mean, you suspend the player for more than just a week. And um, I saw someone, I think Dan Zimborski of uh, Fangraphs uh, mentioned where you suspend the player for a while, but then you also uh, not suspend the team, but you put the team on watch to kind of curb that. And if, you know, it happens again, then they lose, you know, draft picks. I mean, you really have to start punishing not just at the player level, but at the team level too. I mean, that's drastic, but... I mean, it's it's a thing that we that needs to be you know taken care of because it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, I think that's a good to, that's a good idea with the team of, part, just because I I think Matthew's right. I don't think that was Brad Keller saying I need to get revenge. I think he did it because of the peer pressure and the the tradition and, and like the team kind of that's that's what you do. So, so yeah, it makes a lot more sense to do that way. But Matthew, you're gonna say? Yeah. So like just to to piggyback on what you're saying, Sean, um, we're like suspensions and that that kind of thing. And you think about it in football, for instance. Um, if 
somebody is clearly taunting a player, that's a penalty, right? And it's not, you know, carried out by the other players, right? That's carried out by the umpire. So the umpire says, hey, you can't do that. And then it's a penalty. So if, for instance, MLB implemented something like that, right? And a, a somebody was clearly pimping out a home run in a, you know, taunting type of manner, then you call it an out or whatever. And, you know, that's also one way to do it is get the umpires involved on that side of things too. If you don't want X behavior to happen, then there should be a rule that X behavior should not be allowed and there are consequences for it. But as it is, it's in this weird kind of gray state of, oh yeah, it's allowed, we kind of like it, we're gonna show it on social media, but we kind of, you know, yeah, I guess we'll suspend the guy. But it's it's just in a weird space right now. The, yeah, that was that was nuts. That cut four, which is an official MLB product, if I'm correct, you know, talked all about it. Let the players play or let the kids play or whatever, and it got tons of hits on social media. Kind of forts, and yeah, this is a great moment in baseball. And then you know he gets suspended. Now, obviously, part of that is because of his um, the racial slur he did or did not use, and from the kind of the reporting of what it is, I don't necessarily have a problem with the slur he used. Um, because it's kind of a, it's obviously a cultural thing, and I have no problem with him using it. Uh, I didn't like that he used it kind of at Brad Keller. I think that puts it in a bit of a different context, um, calling him weak. Uh, but I I, I I I get it. But still, part of it was like, hey, let's play this highlight. Oh yeah, then we're gonna suspend him too. So yeah, I, I, as far as Matthew's idea too, I don't think the one of the worst rules in college football is the taunting penalties i mean it just it gets so bad i don't think you want referees and umpires policing that stuff uh, but it would be interesting if if you know the the suspension for keller is kind of a joke because they can just kind of game the suspension to fall when they don't need a fifth star or whatever uh but what if you what if it was actually like a penalty in the game if you intentionally hit a guy like he gets two bases or three bases instead of the action instead of just first base i wonder if teams would maybe take that a little more seriously because at the time for the Royals, that was the game, you know, the lead run in the game. It was a tie game when he hit Anderson, so that could have represented the tying run. If you put the or the winning run, if you put the winning run at second base in scoring position uh, with no outs, maybe that's a different story and they don't hit him. Uh, so I don't know if that would be a deterrent at all. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Matthew, do you think, you know, I think that it seems like a generational uh, gap right now on the attitudes of bat flips and, um, and retaliatory beanings. Uh, we're like, you know, the older people who have kind of grown up seeing this in baseball for a long time. I think they're very much like, you know, this has been in baseball for a long time. Let's keep it. Whereas I think the younger fans are more like, you know, this is kind of nonsense. We don't need guys getting intentionally hit and bat flips are, are fine with us. So do you think this is something that's going to kind of die out eventually where, where bat flips will be commonplace and retaliations are not going to be, they're going to be a thing of the past eventually, or is this, is baseball so kind of his stuck in its history that it's always going to have some element of this? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I I honestly don't know. I I would assume at some point, since baseball changes, as every sport changes, that I think it would would die off. I think all it would take really is for someone to get involved in some some sort of thing. So, for instance, you know, a player like Tim Anderson pimps a home run, does a bat flip, and everything, and then Brad Keller the Brad Keller equivalent throws and, you know, tries to hit him. And it's very clearly 
he's intending to hit him because he did a thing. And then Keller seriously injures him or whoever the pitch is. I'm just using Keller as, as the example here, right? If, if there's a situation which a pitcher seriously injures a hitter because of some sort of, in, uh, you know, interaction, I think that will really be the catalyst for some change. Um, because, you know, there, there have been a lot of serious, you know, injuries. You know, if you think of Omar Infante, uh, you know, the reason why he started wearing that flap was because, you know, he got hit in the jaw and he broke his jaw. You know, if something like that happens, or even worse, right, if there's some sort of head injury, uh, I could see the catalyst for that being a, for that changing the rules or changing people's, you know, thoughts about it. You know, the thing about baseball is um, there's, it's, as you say, it's always so based in tradition that change is almost always universally, you know, opposed until something happens and people are like, oh, and then there's some, some shift on it. Um, for instance, uh, kind of a similar thing. I mean, not really, uh, in terms of safety, at least, though, um, is the extension of the netting around. Um, you know, it was it was that I want to say it was it was somebody in Boston that got hit and got seriously injured. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, that team's kind of sort of finally thought, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to extend the netting. And you remember, people didn't really like that at all. And they sort of complained, and it, it still it, it happened because enough serious things and serious injuries happened that they were the catalyst for the change. So I guess to answer your question in a too long didn't didn't read, there has to be some sort of major injury catalyst that that shifts the thinking significantly enough, yeah. because as it is now. These things happen all the time, and there's no movement on it, right? We're no closer to a any consensus now than we were a week ago, and that happens every time. Yeah, I feel like bat flips. At least there is. I think there's a movement at least to get that more accepted. I think the the more the game has been kind of internationalized, we've seen you know we've seen epic bat flips all the time in Japan and Korea, and in like uh, games in the Latin America, um, and I feel like that's starting to become more accepted. But I think re- retaliatory plunkings, maybe it won't be for like a guy pimping a home run necessarily, but it may be for like, our, too many of our guys got hit, we've got to get them back, or, or whatever personal animus they have against a guy team. Or maybe, you know, some guy hit three home runs off me, I'm going to hit him in the back just to show him, you know, whatever. I think that's probably, unfortunately, here to stay. You know, it could die out eventually, but... Um, I, th- I still feel like there's that element in baseball where um, a lot of these old school guys are going to pass it on to the, to the younger guys and they're, and they're going to carry on that tradition and we'll probably still have that. But uh, who knows? You know, we'll see if, if baseball eventually kind of gets rid of some of its more uh, archaic traditions. I mean, they like Sean mentioned, they did get rid of guys bowling into the second baseman at, uh, on double plays and some of the other, uh, you know, bowling over catchers, some of the more violent um, measures in baseball, so who knows? We'll see if maybe there's a a more enlightened game in 20 years. Uh, I want to turn a little bit to Alex Gordon because he's off to such a great start, and it looked like his career was kind of dead. He has, you know, ever since he signed that big contract with the Royals, he's had three years of really just kind of crummy performance at the plate. Now, luckily, he's still a very good defender, so he's been, you know, he's had some value on defense. But right now. Going into Monday's action, he was 10th in all of baseball among position players 
in wins above replacement, uh, according to Fangraphs. He's hitting 316 with a 398 on base percentage, a 582 slug, and and, and uh, on the game in, uh, on Monday night in Tampa, he hit his uh, fifth home run. He looks like a totally different guy at the plate, Sean. Um, is there something you're noticing with with how he's uh, approaching uh, the approaching hitting these days that looks different, or is this a, a rejuvenated Gordon, or is this maybe just too small of a sample size to to really glean much from his performance? Yeah, uh, I mean, he definitely, you know, I, I think a hot start would be an understatement if you're going to call it that. Um, and I do want to say that if if anyone brings up this notion that he's finally healthy, I don't buy it. Uh, but having having started with We're that, just in, just in that he hasn't been hurt in the last couple of years, is that? What well, I mean, I feel like I feel like someone's going to be like, oh, he's finally over. Um, what was it? His hamstring? Mm-hmm. Or uh, I, I just feel like for years that was. I mean, no offense, but he was bad in 16, 17, 18. Right. I don't think a hamstring okay. issue. <laughs> Three-year hamstring injury. Yeah, the, he needs to be, like, in the hospital if that's the case. <laughs> um, so having having said that, though, yeah, I mean, he definitely – one thing that's kind of uh, came back is that he's definitely gone the opposite field. I remember that was always kind of the big thing with him saying, hey, you know, he needs to get back to where he was. Um, he's actually setting career highs in opposite field percentage, at least so far. Um, obviously, there's going to be some regression coming from him, but – it's not necessarily the kind of interesting thing I think that's been is, yeah, he's going opposite field more, but it just seems like his power is has mostly always been to the, the pull side. And I mean, it doesn't matter how much he goes up the field if he's just yanking, you know, pull home runs. And that's what's been really impressive, I think. So I think that, yeah, obviously going opposite field helps a bit, uh, especially kind of with your average and in turn your OBP. Um, but I've been more impressed with kind of his pull power necessarily than his, um, you know, singles and doubles the other way. He did mention that he was he had kind of loosened his hands up and was um, just freeing his hands up to get some better action on his swing. His swing looks quicker to me. I don't, and maybe that's just biased because he's hitting so well. But yeah. on the higher pitches, last year it seemed like he would just swing over those, or he's behind them. And now it seems like he's getting around on them and he's hitting them out of the ballpark and hitting them with authority. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, he's got that Jason Kipnis kind of swing now, yeah. um, where he starts with the bat way out. Um, Oh gosh, uh, Statcast took it away. They had swing speed. Uh, it used to have it. I think they got rid of it sometime in the off season. Uh, but it was slowly declining every year. And so, yeah, I agree. I mean, he definitely looks like he's just quicker at the plate. And um, I'm happy. I mean, if this is the last year of Alex Gordon, uh, which I mean, it almost surely will be at least with the Royals. Um, might as well make it a good one. Well, I also want to ask Matthew. I mean, he does have a twenty-three million dollar mutual option for next year with a. Four million buyout. Almost certainly that won't get picked up by the Royals. But is this necessarily the last year for Alex Gordon? I mean, say he has a reasonably productive year. I mean, I don't think he's going to hit like this all year, but he could. He's. I mean, he's already almost a month into the season, and he's put up pretty good numbers. That usually means you're going to have at least a solid season. Um, you know, he's 35 years old. He'll be 36 next February. Um, is it possible the Royals bring him back next year? I mean, it's not like their outfield situation is that settled right now, and they could – probably benefit from a veteran so do you think there's do you think this is a swan song for alex gordon in kansas city or could we bring him back i think it depends entirely on him i think if he wants to play i can't see him playing anywhere else i i really don't and you know it's impossible to tell what he wants right but i i think you know knowing everything that he's he's said and been for the community he would want to return as a royal you know um, rather than play for a different team. So I do think it depends on him. 
Um, I the real interesting thing is what does a contract like his look like, right? So if he's playing as he is now, um, you know he's an MVP candidate. Now he's going to cool off a little bit. But what happens if he puts up, I don't know, like a four and a half win season? You know, uh, what kind of contract does he command? Because well, would he want to take a two-year deal or a one-year deal? Or what, what does that look like? So that's the only situation which I think that maybe he doesn't return to the Royals because the numbers don't work out because he's too good this year. Well, I think the way baseball is going, he's going to be 36 years old. So if he, if he puts up a four-win season as a 36-year-old, he's probably getting a minor league deal. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it's going for these older guys. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's hard to imagine him playing for another team other than the Royals. But remember, when he was a free agent, he was definitely shopping or at least soliciting offers from other teams. My sense is that he would want to stay in the Midwest. I mean, he's got a family in Nebraska. Um, I think he made it pretty clear when he was a free agent he didn't want to go to the East Coast or West Coast. There was a few teams he was very interested in playing for in the Midwest, not all the Royals, too. So I think if any of those teams were interested in him and wanted him to play every day, I wouldn't be surprised if he at least took a year to go play somewhere else, uh, especially if it was like the Cubs who are a contender or, the, you know, God forbid, the Cardinals. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me that much. But uh, I don't know. Sean, do you think uh, – you seem to think that the, the door is going to close on Alex Gordon uh, and he's not going to come back next year. Would you, would you want to bring him back at all? First off, I absolutely hope he goes to the Cardinals. That would be the greatest <laughs> moment, just how inc- – how incredibly split everybody would be on that is exactly what I'm wishing for. Um, but I mean, like, I don't think he's going to get a two year deal, even if he does put up a four win season. Um, I just, I, I just don't think anybody buys it. Um, but I mean, bringing him back no, I, I'm just not for it. I mean, best case is you bring him back at, you know, call it 10 million. Say it's a four win season. You bring him back at 10 million. Um, I mean, that's still good surplus value. It's reasonable. But, I mean, do you want to risk, you know, he's had such poor years the past three years. Do we want to buy? I mean, we all love Alex Gordon. I mean, how much are we just baking in our kind of hometown bias that this year it's different as opposed to all the bad hitting years he's had that all of a sudden at age 35 he go, mm-hmm. he remembered how to hit. So, um, no, I, I can't I can't foresee bringing him back. I, I, just, I just don't think it'd be wise unless it's like a minor league deal. You know, anything ridiculous like that. But otherwise – I think it's time to try someone else. I mean, not time to try, but left field can be opened up for someone else. We don't need to keep running out of 30, what would be a 36-year-old there. Yeah, I feel like by that point, you should at least have some some pretty good options to play in that outfield. Like if it's, you know, Brett Phillips or Jorge Bonifacio, even um, uh, Khalil, Ma- Eek, Khalil Leo, Nick. Michael Gigliotti, who knows, or Kyle mm-hmm. Isbell could be ready by the end of next year, maybe. Uh, so... I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I. I love Alex Gordon. I think he's gonna have a statue in front of the stadium someday. But eventually, kind of, you have to say goodbye. And I think that. I think this will be the last year for Alex Gordon. Hopefully, he goes off on a good note because I know there are a lot some fans who probably don't even remember the Alex Gordon who was a MVP caliber player. But um, it is nice to kind of see him hitting like this. Really, the whole team has been hitting pretty well. I think better than a lot of people thought. Right now, the team. At least going into Monday's games, they're they're eighth in the league in, in, in runs scored, which is, I mean, better than I thought the team would do. They're eighth in home runs, which for a team that doesn't really emphasize power that much, that's pretty uh, pretty impressive, I guess. Uh, and I was looking up kind of historic numbers for the Royals. They're on pace uh, right now to set a franchise record for home runs. 
uh, with 193. That would be more than the record set back in 2017. But they're also on uh, pace to set the record for most strikeouts for a Royals club. Uh, this is actually the 16th best runs scored pace uh, out of any Royals club in history. So those kind of seem like impressive numbers. But then when you think about it, you know, obviously this is an age of home runs and strikeouts. And Matthew, I mean, this that's the baseball's come in kind of trending this way for a while now. I guess as a fan, how do you feel about the home runs and strikeouts that are kind of infiltrating the game right now? Uh, I'm I'm fine with it. I know that there's a lot of people who are you know not you know not not so happy about it. But you know if if we think about just what happened about ten years ago at the height of. Um, uh, the sort of pitcher world, right, where offense was at a lull um, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of home runs going on or anything. Like, that's that's kind of no fun. Um, and, you know, a home run is, like, possibly the most iconic thing in American sports to happen, you know? It's it's a metaphor, you know, hit to hit a home run. or And it's, it's a thing in a way that... Um, you know, a touchdown pass or, you know, an ace in tennis just isn't, you know, it's, it's a cultural, you know, phenomenon. So everybody loves home runs. That's, that's the thing. I think the, the thing that people don't like is that it's come at the, the uh, result of a lot of strikeouts. Um, you know, and, and I think that's uh, from both the casual fan who's like, why isn't there more action to the kind of old school, you know, Rex Hubler types of like, back in my day, it was an embarrassment to strike out kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, I think if if you allow me to diagnose the problem, I think that specifically is the problem is that we're watching, you know, record year after record year of strikeouts and there's no sign of stopping and when a strikeout happens it's just not particularly exciting you know even if like you're you're on on the field um or at a game and you know it's a called strike well you can't really see if that's an accurate strike or not it's it's just kind of like a non-event um so i think that's that's the real problem It'll be interesting to see whether they do anything like they did in the late 60s where they, like, raise the mound or lower the mound. What was it? They, they lowered they it, right? They lowered the mound, yeah. Yeah. So And added a designated hitter a couple years later in the American League. Right. I, I, I do wonder if, if something like that is going to happen. I guess we'll see. Um, maybe it's because we got to the Royals and I've had very, very many web gems that I've experienced that I'm not that you know, torn up by it. But if you're a fan of a team, you know, that's really leaning into that kind of style play, I can see why it might be. And baseball's always kind of been a, an evolving creating. game where, where, you know, like the strategy, you've had strategy and then there's counter strategy to kind of, you know, combat it. So I'm kind of interested to see how that evolves naturally before any kind of drastic rule changes take place. But, you know, Sean, it, you know, Matthew does bring a good point that, it is, you know, the three true outcomes are good strategy for a baseball team, but, as an overall sport, it does get a little maybe tedious when you see guys just taking balls and strikes. Uh, does baseball need to make a drastic drastic change here? No, I mean I think you just let the game evolve as it as it naturally will. I mean, um, you're gonna have strikeouts. Guys aren't throwing 84 anymore like normally. Uh, you're gonna have more strikeouts as you know pitchers throw the ball faster. I mean, yeah, one because of the mound, two because there's only like a finite amount of reaction time a batter can have and 
we know that 94 looks uh, for some pitchers looks a lot faster um, than, you know, your reaction time is considerably less at 94 than what is it, you know, 84 or 90. So I think it's just going to be, unless we're going to just find a way to slow down pitchers throwing, which sounds ridiculous. Um, there is also as well, I think kind of a, I think there's a natural top out. Um, it's a total, whatever the stupid show was, sports science. Um, it was, I think the natural top out, God, I want to say it's 104 or 105, mm-hmm. like for a human arm effectively couldn't throw more than that. Um, and so Velocity can only rise so far, and it's almost absolutely not going to be. Everybody's going to throw 105. I think it's. I think we're kind of nearing the top of you know really it's where it's safe to throw. So I think you've got a natural kind of um, rise in strikeouts just because of the better skill of pitchers and everything's a lot more specialized. So no, I think you just let the game evolve um, as it goes. I, I mean, does anybody? Do any real baseball fans think the game think the action is boring? Now you can think that the. Um, the time between action is too long and, you know, inning changes and, and uh, mid inning pitches changes. Uh, but does anybody think that the actual action itself is boring? I know that I don't. Well, I, I, I think I've raised this point before. I, I don't think Royals games are boring because I'm a fan of the Royals and I'm really invested in how they're doing. But where I watch two teams that I'm not a fan of, it gets a little tedious at times, especially last the last postseason. I thought, you know, some of those games really dragged down and even if it's all becomes all home runs and strikeouts I guess it I think I you just prefer a diversity of ways to score I guess uh rather than just home runs I mean I think you like to see all different kinds of hitters guys that can hit the ball at the ballpark but also guys that can walk and guys that can slap the ball and get on base through base hits and stealing second I think that would be a more aesthetically pleasing uh game uh, the other point is that you would think all these home runs uh, are inflating offense and run scoring's up a little bit, but it's still way down from the 90s when everyone was hitting home runs, and that's because batting average is so low, and some of that's because the strikeouts are so high. Some of that's also because of defensive shifts and de- defenders are better now. Uh, and I don't know, you know, they've talked about banning shifts, which I think, which I think would be a bad idea. You talk about, you know, the velocity and how, you know, we, we can top out. Um, I think movement is also a big deal with pitchers. Uh, but they have talked about uh, possibly moving the mound back uh, a couple of inches, which would obviously give hitters more reaction time and could allow them to make more contact. Matthew, would that be too drastic of a change for you? Um, I think probably. Um, I think he. I, that that seems like a really bad idea. I think lowering the mound probably is going to be your your better bet. Um, but moving it back seems just like injury risk rating to happen. I also wonder if no one's really talked about like moving fences back. I and mean, we just kind of we just came back from Yankee Stadium, the Royals did at least, and uh, you know that we saw the Yankees hit like five home runs on Saturday, none of which went over 380 feet. And it seems like home runs have become a little cheap, at least in some ballparks. Uh, so I wonder if the, there would ever be a push to make it universal that hey, everyone's got to move their fences back, you know, 10 feet or something like that. That gives you a bigger outfield where more balls can drop in for hits, and it also makes home runs more of a premium. But I don't know if baseball necessarily wants to get rid of home runs. I mean, I think that I think Sean kind of brings up a point that you know home runs are appealing, and that for a lot of fans that's actually what they want. So I don't know if baseball would ever go in that direction. It's so I, I guess basically just let the game evolve. Is that is that kind of yeah? Consensus? I I think so. 
Um, and I just pulled from Fangraphs real quick, just the league stats for every single year. And yeah, home runs as a percentage of hits are at an all-time high, 16%. Um, and then 17 and 18 and 16 are right after that. Um, and then home runs as a percentage of runs are also at an all-time high. Um, with 17, 18, 16, 15, right below that. So, um, but curiously enough, I mean, like, did people complain a lot? And I mean, I was 10 years old um, at the time. Um, did people complain a lot about home runs in 2000, 2001, 99? I mean, it seems like it's maybe a newer age thing, right? It's, I felt like there was some complaining just because it, it just was getting a little ridiculous. You'd see guys hmm. like check swing and hit home runs and guys were pretty beefed up. I think there were some lost suspicions <laughs> of uh, some performance enhancing drugs, but, but yeah, it's I the strikeouts, think, I man. Think, I, tell I, don't you. Think, I don't think people are complaining as much as they are now. But if that's your point. Hmm. But yeah, I, I think it's the strikeouts. It's not the home runs. Everyone yeah. loves home runs. It's the strikeouts. Yeah. Because baseball definitely had walks. some fallow offensive periods, like the eighties teams didn't score that much. They didn't hit for very good averages even. But um, but guys didn't hit home runs at all, and and then yeah, but they weren't striking out either. So the, the game seemed to kind of move along a little quicker. So I don't know. Baseball's had all sorts of eras. You know, it's it's home runs go up, averages go down, uh, all throughout history. So I guess we'll have to see what direction it goes in next. And and I don't know, Sean. Do you think there's a any kind of um, kind of market opportunity? I know the Royals are kind of putting their money on speed, which. I'm a little dubious about that, but is there maybe some sort of direction to go that teams aren't really looking at that could could take advantage of this extreme? No, because like the definition of Moneyball, if there is a definition, it's not like I think I think it gets a rap as like everybody's doing this, so let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, if everybody's hitting home runs and getting on, well, everybody should always be getting on this. If everybody's hitting home runs. Let's do speed and contact instead. And then, you know, speed and contact game in a place like, oh, let's hit home runs. That's not really the definition of Moneyball. It's really just looking for undervalued kind of ideas and approaches. Um, and so, I mean, really, is anybody is anybody going to be like, hey, everybody's hitting home runs. We can't hit – let's don't hit home runs. Let's do something else because it's like, no, home runs are like the best thing you can – literally the best thing a hitter can do um, in any scenario, in any count, in any inning – um, so I, I don't think that there's an efficiency to be found outside of, I mean, if everybody's hitting home runs and you're not, that sounds a heck of a lot worse than everybody is, uh, using speed and defense and hitting home runs. <laughs> I, I'd rather be hitting home runs than putting the ball in play. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break here. Maybe we'll talk about some future Royals home run hitters. Uh, stick with us and we'll talk about Sean's top 20 prospect list right after this. Hey, we're back, and uh, joining me is uh, Sean Newkirk and Matthew Lamar, and we're just talking about Sean's top 20 prospect list. If you haven't read it yet, it's on our site. We'll include it in the show notes. And, uh, Sean, what's really interesting to me is with the Royals system is that there's not really a consensus number one this year. Uh, I've seen lists that have Brady Singer at the top. I've seen lists with Khalil Lee at the top, Suli Matias, MJ Melendez. You went with Daniel Lynch, the left-handed pitcher they took in the draft in 2018, out of the University of Virginia. Tell us a little bit why you've had him numero uno in the Royal system. So I like uh, Lynch and Lee. Um, Lynch was my number one, but I could live with someone putting Lee um, as well there. I know Keith Law liked them basically the same. I think it was like 52nd against 55th with Lynch in the lead. But, I mean, you know, practically the same. Um, I just – 
he had the velo bump, which I think is really, really good there. I think he's probably the most kind of um, co- Jackson Coar is kind of a little bit more, maybe more raw with more upside. But I think Lynch represents kind of maybe the second best upside. Um, t- hits 97, which is among the top in the and kind of the Royals pitching prospects kind of of that group. Um, I mean, could be kind of. 50s across the board. I mean, good fastball, good slider. Could be a little better on the changeup. Has some, you know, I wouldn't say his minor league numbers so far have shown it, but I think he's got a little bit better command than kind of his walk rate so far in Wilmington. Um, he had good numbers last year in Lexington in rookie ball, but in Wilmington he's been been a bit wild. But I'm not too worried about it at this point. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just I think he is he represents uh, is from the pitching side at least the kind of. Um, Maybe not the best pure upside, but the best mix of upside and kind of probability to be good. Do you feel like there's a lot of separation between like the, any of the guys in the top five? Because I feel like they're all kind of smushed together. I think there's a, re- there's a reason why there's been a whole lot of different number ones by different rankings. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely do. Um, I think it comes down to, I mean, if you look at kind of the neo, I almost said neoclassical, whatever. If you look at the, the, the standard um, of kind of if you pulled and I'm not an expert on this at all, but if you pulled the experts, I think you would come down between some mixture of Lynch, Lee, Matias, Singer. That's uh, probably it. So probably be like the top four, right? Am I missing someone that would would be in contention to go kind of the best number one? Um, I think I've seen at least one list with MJ Melendez. Okay. And Matthew, I know you're pretty high on Melendez. Uh, would he be your number one, or is it, is it maybe someone else that that Sean mentioned there? No, I'd uh, I'd probably put my number one as either Lee or um, either Jackson Coar or or um, or Lynch or even Brady Singer. Like a lot of them. Like at this point, there's not a lot to differentiate them. You know, they all have different style of pitching, and they all have different kind of, uh, you know, traits that are good, right? Singer is like the most polished, but probably not the uh, most, you know, uh, the most upside. Um, you know, Lynch is the lefty with the velocity, but he's maybe not as, you know, uh, of a sure shot, you know. Uh, Coar has, maybe has the best best stuff. Um, but it's, it's they're all kind of similar in terms of, um, it's, just, it's just overall uh, talent combined with probability of success. And Sean, you mentioned that 50s across the board. Can you just go ahead and explain what you mean by that? Um, I assume not everyone knows, you know, what that means in terms of prospect lingo. No, they can just Google it. I mean, it's really <laughs> available. Uh, no, so 50s across the board, um, it varies. That's a good point. So it varies. So for hitters, if it's 50s across the board, it's 50s or better. Typically, it's like someone who's going to be a 50-55 with 50 being the average tool. So you could call it average, just the half a step above average. Um, For hitters, it's it's all the same thing. It's it's hit tool, power, speed, uh, defense, and um, arm strength. Uh, But with pitchers... Yeah, I should have clarified. Uh, pitchers, it can vary because obviously it depends on what, what pitch they have. But I think classically, if you looked at, if I said 50s across the board, it's usually fastball, command, um, probably a curveball, and then maybe a, a, a third pitch. Uh, some guys obviously have four pitches, but for Lynch, I really was talking about um, fastball, slider, 
and then change up and then curveball as well. So he has four and then you could give him probably average or so command. So that's a true kind of fifties across the board. Cause he has four traits plus command. Some guys like maybe Brady Singer is only like fastball curveball change up. Um, and then, uh, then command. So you could call that fifties, but I think, I think with Lynch, at least I was talking about uh fastball slider curve and change. Um, he's got kind of the best four pitch mix. Um, and that's one of the knocks with singer. Um, just kind of back to, what I was saying with like, if you had to rank, if you had to take a poll of the top four, I think you'd get a bunch. I, I think you would get a, a pretty, pretty close bunch up. I think it's absolutely wrong to have Matias in that category of Singer, Lynch, and Lee, um, just because the variance on Matias is just way too wide to kind of include them in a group. And this is just the way that I look at prospects, but that would be my opinion. Um, and so I think that if you've got Lee, Lynch, and Singer, if you're differentiating between the three. I think Lynch has, you know, four pitches, um, maybe not quite as good as command as Singer, um, but, you know, <clears throat> he's got arguably a better fastball, um, better velocity, got a better movement, um, a little better command maybe on it. And then he's got uh, the next best pitch is the slider. I think his slider is better than anything Singer throws. Um, and then you've got the curveball. I know Singer gets a lot of hype kind of for his curveball, but I really don't. I'm not really buying that it's that great. Um, and so I think you could put it kind of on even ground as the curveball, and then their changeups are about the same. Um, and then I think Singer probably might have a little better command, but not not an incredible amount. So Lynch, to me, just stands out um, more than Kowar or Singer, the kind of the big three that were taken. Yeah, I think Lynch kind of represents the best uh, marriage of, like, stuff, pedigree, upside, and results. Because, you know, Brady Singer, I, I think I'm higher than on him than you, but... But I don't. I don't think I quite see the same upside as I do with Lynch. I think Lynch has a chance to be pretty special. Whereas Singer looks like he'll be a solid, uh, you know, number two or number three. And, and, and you know, who knows? He could, you know, wildly exceed that. Uh, and of course, we haven't seen as much of Singer because he didn't. He kind of got shut down in the last year. Whereas Lynch went and just kind of dominated in his pro debut. So I think I'm with you and Lynch standing up. Uh, you know, a little bit above. I, I wouldn't say he's like heads and tails above Singer or Kowar, but. Um, I would have them, uh, I think, a little bit edged above above those two. The big risk, the, really the big risk with, I, I think with if you're looking at Singer, um, it comes down to how you think if he's going to get uh, left-handed batters out. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, he's got, you know, the curveball that's actually kind of a more slurvy um, that'll run into left-handers, and, you know, his changeup is average-ish. So I think if you can, if you think he's going to be able to get left-handers out, um, then, you know, he moves up, but... Um, with the kind of, you know, no true third pitch, no true left-handed neutralizing pitch. Um, I think that's where he might run into issues. Now you have uh, Michael Gigliotti ranked number three in the system, which is a lot more aggressive than a lot of other lists, which who didn't even live, have him in their top 10. Yeah. Uh, Lips, uh, Gigliotti, if you don't remember, he was a 2017 fourth-round pick. Got off to a promising start that year, but uh, missed almost all of last year with a bad ACL injury. He's back, though. And what is it about Gigliotti you like so much to, to rank him uh, number three in the system? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to start with uh, he tracked down a ball, and I mentioned it in my list. He tracked down um, this fly ball to kind of right center field. Um, it's like a week or two ago, probably about a week ago. Um, that was just like I couldn't, absolutely could not believe he got there. Um, I was looking for the right fielder to catch it, and, and Gigliotti's just like, no, nah, I'll grab this one. Um, so I think starting from there, I mean – 
I really think you're looking at it at least an above average to, you know, probably plus defender and center, um, you know, just as good wheels, uh, good field to hit and contact. And then, um, you know, power is not great, but I think you could look at, I mean, first you've got the kind of inflated ball, the juice ball in double A and MLB that, you know, could boost his numbers. Um, what Merrifield hit, God, did, did Merrifield hit 20 home runs at one point or pretty close to it, right? Close, close to it. I don't think he hit. The uh, Merrifield hit. Sorry. I know I really want to look. Uh, 19. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. I mean, if Merrifield, I wouldn't say Merrifield has really much more power um, than Gigliotti does. And, I mean, they've got, uh, if he can hit 19, I can't see why you couldn't put him um, at 10 or 15. Um, and so I, I just think that there's, kind of a more polished college hitter that has a baseline of, you know, an above average um, center fielder. Um, and I always, I always think it back to um, when Fangraphs, the guys at Fangraphs ranked Christian Posh in the uh, Braves organization. They said, if I told you a player right now is going to be Kevin Kiermeyer, how is that guy not like, you know, a top 20 prospect Kiermeyer um, or even Pilar, they're not great hitters, but they're such good defenders in center field that even if they're an 80 WRC plus or a 90 WRC plus, they still make incredibly good players. And um, I think that's kind of the same with him. And number four in your system is a guy that's probably like a fan favorite by this point. I think uh, everyone in Kansas City wants to see Nicky Lopez get called up to the big league team. He's been on a tear for Omaha in this last week. What really impresses me, though, is his strikeout rate. And it's, you know, only 15 games in the season. His strikeout rate is 2.9%, which is just absurdly low, and he's always had a very low strikeout rate. I guess the big question with him, though, has always been like, you know, he's always been a kind of a high floor, questionable ceiling kind of guy. What do you kind of see his role with a big league team? Yeah, I mean, if you look at his strikeout rates, he's getting traded. We know that. There's no way the Royals <laughs> are a guy with a sub-10 strikeout rate. Um, no, I mean, with Lopez, like, and I, and I wrote this on my list, um, I have no problem with Lopez himself. His his type is so hard to figure out what they're going to do just because with power being at like a, a premium or maybe not a premium, but being so, so, um, so ubiquitous that it's really tough to find these guys are going to have like sub 100 ISOs or sub 120 ISOs that um, I wouldn't say you can knock the bat out of their hand, but I mean, they're always, they're never going to be like a deep threat. And so you're looking at guys who hit doubles and uh, singles mostly. Um, so I, I, I like Lopez for, for what he is, is what I guess I'm trying to say is that it's tough to value that kind of player. Um, but I don't think it's inconceivable um, to see him as a one and a half to two win player every year. I mean, he could be an average to above average defender at multiple positions, um, you know, good good contacts, um, that decent walk rates. I mean, he's not necessarily, you know, going to be your leadoff hitter. Uh, uh, he could, I mean, he could fill out any, any spot in the lineup card really. And I think he could be okay there I mean, other than catcher. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really weird type, but it's a guy who is ready for the major leagues that could really conceivably be a two in two in player. So you're saying he's uh you know like a Chris Owings except actually good at baseball? Yeah, exactly. That's I I was literally thinking that as I was saying <laughs> that I'm like, man, I don't want to say Chris Owings, uh, just to drag him down because I mean Owings strikes out uh, a, a lot more um, than what I expect Lopez to. But yeah, maybe a good version, the 2014 version of Chris Owings, who was worth one and a half wins. Yeah, it, it, you look you can check out the whole list on our site, but you know it seems like it's an assistant right now that. 
doesn't have kind of top end talent, but it does seem like there are a lot of like higher floor guys that could at least make the big leagues. Um, maybe not necessarily be all stars or even significant contributors, but uh, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of high busts in the system right now. I could be wrong about that, but Matthew, does it kind of feel like the team is moving in the right direction with the farm system or does that lack of high end talent, is that pretty damning for what they're trying to do with this rebuild? Um, I don't really think that lack of high-end talent is a huge problem at this point. Um, the thing for me for in a prospect system um, or a farm system um, is you want to get prospects that will make the major leagues, and that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, even average players are incredibly valuable, especially if they're pitchers. I mean, you think of the guys that the Royals have signed because they haven't had a pitcher who could just be that average guy, right? They spent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on Jeremy Guthrie and Bruce Chen and Ian Kennedy and just all these guys that they, you know, didn't, you know, have in the minor leagues. Um, And I think that if you have those guys in the minor leagues, then all of a sudden that frees you up to maybe spend on, you know, a uh, premier free agent or maybe, you know, your best value premier free agent or if you're the Royals um, and think you can't afford one. Um, So I think that's, you know, league average players are incredibly valuable, Um, especially when they're, you're, they're getting paid the league minimum. And some of these guys too, you never know when you're going to, a guy will take a jump in development and become a, Dallas Keuchel or Corey Kluber, who wasn't like necessarily a highly regarded prospect, but figured something out at the major league level and, and took it to the next step. Uh, or even Wet Merrifield was kind of a late bloomer who became a five-win mm-hmm. player and became quite valuable. Sean, I know you're not like a, an expert on all the farm systems in baseball, but what's kind of your general sense on where the Royal system ranks in baseball, knowing that they've made some improvements, but um, they don't have that top necessarily that top 100 guy that you need. Yeah, I mean, part of the part of the improvement is really just you know, you you would expect improvement, and I think that that kind of buries buries the lead a bit where it's like, oh, the Orioles went from 29th to 24th. Oh, hey, the system's getting better, which I mean, it had to have really gotten better given all the first round picks they had, um, or all the earlier picks they had. So um, I think there's improvement in the sense that yeah, they've 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 raised the floor of kind of their system a little bit more. I'm not sure, other than maybe Lynch, that they added any guys that, you know, are uh, system changing. Now, when it comes, you know, call it whatever it is, two months from now or 40 whatever days from now, um, when the draft rolls around the world, they have the number two pick, that's a chance where they can conceivably uh, raise the ceiling and rather than just the floor on their um, system and add a guy who could be or should be an instantaneous top 100 prospect. Um, that's, that's really where I think that, the Royals need to be because they are in the hopefully the trough of the rebuilding part um, where it only kind of get better from here and your system. Um, I would love for them to really collect those guys uh, that have those, you know, super high upside uh, as opposed to, and, and Matthew's right. There's nothing wrong with a bunch of league average guys. Um, but I mean, I think if we've shown anything, you can't win um, a World Series or make the playoffs. I mean, you've got Mike Trout, the greatest player in our generation, and he's saddled with a, a, a lot of league average guys. And, you know, they made the playoffs. I, how many, what, t- twice in the past, in the time he's been there, or maybe one time and no playoff uh, series win. So I don't know. 
I think that they, I think with the Royals and their lower payroll um, that they want to run and the market size that they need to, they need to be focusing more on upside because they're never going to be able to get that talent anywhere else. Yeah, and the Leafs will have a chance maybe this this June to get the that number two overall pick to be that guy. And then you know, you can also count on maybe a sleeper, or you can't count on it, but hopefully a sleeper comes out. And I guess I'll, I'll we'll kind of wrap up the prospect talk by I'll ask each of you guys if there's a sleeper in the system that maybe you think could jump up some lists pretty quickly or uh, maybe everyone's sleeping on. For me, I used to say Kyle Isbell, but I feel like the book is kind of out on him now. People are kind of waking up to how good he is. Uh, so I'll pick another guy from last year's draft. I kind of like Jonathan uh, Bolin. I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, out of the University of Memphis, he's uh, you know he, he kind of gets passed over when people talk about the pitchers from last year's draft when they talk about Lynch and Coar and Singer and even Chris Chris Bubik. Uh, but Bolin is kind of a bigger body dude uh, who had pretty good strikeout numbers at Memphis. Struck out 18 in a game once in the um, American Athletic Conference, which isn't a terrible baseball conference. It's a pretty decent competition. Uh, and he didn't do that well on his professional debut. It was in Idaho Falls, which is a pretty tough place to pitch anyway. Uh, but so far for Lexington this year, he's come out pretty well with 13 to third innings. Uh, he's only walked two, and he struck out 20. Uh, so those are pretty, pretty good numbers. And, of course, it's early, and, and it's the South Atlantic League. He's probably um, – a little old to be in that league. Uh, so maybe he'll get moved up, you know, before too long, but I, he's a guy I'm at least keeping an eye on. I'm not saying he's going to be a super great prospect, but um, I think he's got the ability to miss bats and, and either, whether it's a, uh, and I always have an affinity for bigger, bigger pitchers and sturdy guys that can uh, maybe eat some innings and strike some guys out. So Jonathan Bolin is kind of my pick. Sean, do you want to have, do you have a sleeper that you're maybe keeping an eye on? Um, other than Estuary Ruiz in the Padre system, um, <laughs> oh, I'm always going to harp that. That's, that's still a, that touches a nerve. Uh, um, I, I think I think I could say Gabriel Cancel um, is a guy that I like, but I'm going to go actually with uh, Gabriel Cancel. Still a guy I like, but I'm going to say Carlos Hernandez, who I think has got a little bit of hype. Um, little not older, but he's not like 18. He's 22, um, but he's got maybe the best fastball in the system. Um, you know, it's not like up to 103 like Josh Stamont, but um, it's got good movement. It commands it well. So I think Carlos Hernandez, and he has the best spin rate in the org too. Um, when I was putting my list together, I I know a guy who um, does Trackman um, for uh, Lexington, or not Lexington, for the, the Sally League. Um, and he had mentioned that he had seen uh, Carlos Hernandez up to, uh, what was it, 2,600? Uh, mid to mid 2550 so 2550 um and so that's the best that would be the best um in the org as far as that we you know have trackman data for so um i kind of like him as a guy matthew do you have a sleeper in the system that you think could uh be impressing us before too long i do this is going to be a super sleeper but uh i really like rudy martin mm. so if the royals have like a number of guys who you could you know, dream about being, you know, the next Gerard Dyson. But I think Rudy Martin is actually the guy most likely to do that. Um, like Dyson, he's a left-handed hitter, um, and he has excellent defense, and he has stolen kind of an absurd number of stolen bases. Um, he just turned 23. He's in Wilmington. Uh, two things about him that are really interesting. First of all, is he has basically posted a walk rate 
of at least 10% in every single level he's been at um, of, of any worthwhile, you know, sample size. Um, and also uh, WRC Plus, he's been an above average hitter pretty much every stop since uh, his last stop of 2016. Um, the reason why you haven't heard about him is uh, because, um, you know, power-wise, he's he's got nothing. Um, but, um, and he's also been uh, injured a couple of times, which has sort of hurt his, you know, his playing time a bit. But he's still pretty young. I mean, he's 23. Um, he, like, he just turned 23 a couple months ago. Um, and if he does well at this stint at Wilmington, um, you can see him, you know, being promoted to uh, Northwest Arkansas in, in his age 23 season, which is not nothing. Um, you know, that's, that's a pretty good clip for a guy uh, without any power. Um, so I think... He's a guy that I think you could see in a few years at least be like a fourth outfielder type of person, um, uh, if not something maybe a little more thanks to the uh, the plate discipline, which is kind of a rarity for those kind of guys. Yeah, well, he, I think you got to mention he does have a 27% career strikeout rate in the minors. So that's I think that's also one reason why you don't get a lot from him because you know at some levels he struck out as much as like 35%. Yeah, it's so that's from... so I'm crapping on your pick. Damn <laughs> <laughs> well, you did have a nice article on him. Was I think it was last year, and, yeah. and you also wrote about Nick Heath, who is a yeah. guy that I'm not necessarily seeing as a sleeper, but I've kind of been rooting for just because he's a he's a Kansas kid. Uh, but he also has that really good speed. He stole 39 bases last year, hit pretty well in Wilmington, but has kind of really struggled at the Double A level, off to kind of a tough start. And he's he's already 25, so the clock's kind of ticking on him. He kind of needs to put it together. But he did. He did pretty well in the Arizona Fall League last year and um, kind of a guy I'm rooting for. And uh, He could bring that speed to, to Kauffman Stadium someday if he can have a good season at AA. So there's a couple of sleepers out there. I think I'm really – I think there's the, – the farm system definitely, definitely looks more interesting than it did a couple of years ago where I just didn't feel like there were really many guys at all to get excited about. There's at least a couple of guys there I think are worth tracking and, and keeping an eye on. And, uh, you know, obviously they have a big draft ahead of them. And, of course – Sean will be all over that with his draft coverage, uh, so definitely check that out. And uh, Chase Volo is back to catching everyone, just so everyone knows. He's and hitting. Ready. And hitting, he's and he's not hurt. Yeah. Um, he needs to get his needs to get his butt out of uh, single A ball, but once he does, look out, world. It's, he's, he's down there pretty much just to get his confidence back, right? Because I, I feel like after such a rough season last year, they need to get him back on track. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean, he's been injured, whatever it is now, two years in a row. And um, I mean, he's still striking out at a gaudy rate, but um, an ungodly rate. But I don't know. It. I just will always root for him just because he's really nice guy. Um, and, you know, he just is – I know I get made fun of for him being – saying he's the most interesting prospect, but he's ridiculously interesting <laughs> um, when he, from a stat standpoint. Well, definitely follow Royals Review for all the prospect coverage this summer, and definitely follow Sean for all the latest Chase Velo updates because I'm yeah. sure he's going to be tweeting out every single, every single time Chase hits a home <laughs> run this summer. So, uh, Matthew, thanks so much for joining us tonight, uh, and we'll, we'll have you on again soon. And Sean, why don't, you have us, uh, why don't you send us out with our new catchphrase? Yeah, apologies for LCDS uh, Sport. We, uh, we, we ran out of time tonight, but uh, we'll get you next time. Hey!